0: Well, what an incredible way to start this morning. Amen. Um, God is so good. He's so good. And I didn't know the songs that we were going to sing this morning as we prepared the message. Um, But you're going to find out as I deliver the message this morning that uh, God is in everything. He's in the little details. He's super faithful. And as I unpack a little bit of my story and the words that I believe God has given to me to share with you, you're going to hear a lot of those themes that we sung about this morning. So let's get started. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. As Ryan shared, we are in. Have you seen that meme where it's like we're in third winter right now? Where there was like spring and fake spring and fall spring, and now we're in third winter. So for those of you who are coming back from somewhere warm, so good to see you in your tanned faces. You look amazing. Um, For those of you you who are joining us online, so good to see you as well, Um, pray this finds you well. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Northridge, for those of you who don't know me very well. Um, Though I am blessed to serve the community here in a number of ways, uh, some of my core responsibilities as the community and connections pastor are to help us get connected to each other as a church family. And also to discern and to figure out how we are going to best love and serve the community around us here in Wanakee, but also throughout Dane County and all over the world. And I really love what I do here at Northridge, but I'll tell you this morning that I'm most proud of being Leah's husband. There's a picture of us. This is on my 40th birthday in Central Park in New York. Awesome picture. I love that one. And I'm also super proud to be dad and stepdad to three amazing young women there's a picture of our three girls at um, Union Terrace last spring. Uh, today we're continuing our sermon series that's simply called Troth. And obviously that's not a word that we use every single day. But we've learned over the last couple of weeks that Troth is about a, a contract or an agreement that's made between two parties. To be faithful, to be honoring to one another, and to be loyal. This series is simply about the promises that God has made to us and the promises that we need to make back to him in return. And as we continue this sermon series today, I thought since that you don't normally hear from me for this long on a Sunday morning that I would share a little bit of my story with you this morning as a way of introducing today's promise that God has made to us and that is his forgiveness and our need to confess to him in return. So let's get started. You ready? All right. Most kids don't get to drive until they're 15 years old when they have their learner's permit. But I learned how to drive a lot earlier. When I was three years old, I stole my parents' car out of the garage and I drove it down the alley of our North Minneapolis home. Apparently, as a three-year-old, I had the wherewithal to watch my parents put the keys in wherever they put them in our kitchen, and I learned how to somehow put them in the ignition of the car and either get it into Neutral or reverse, I have no idea which. And by the way, if you've been around for this long, you'll know that car technology and safety has come a long way since 1985, (laughs) right? Now somehow I got that car in motion and it rolled down the slight hill uh, out of our garage, down the alley, towards the busy cross street that was just south of us. Now luckily, praise God, I was able to bring that car to a stop And I did that by crashing it into the neighbor's garage door that was just down the alley from us. In fifth grade, I was one of the oldest kids at our elementary school. And I thought I was a pretty cool guy. And though when you're in fifth grade, as some of you know in the room, you still have to take the bus to school when you're in fifth grade. And so one morning, the older boys and I were sitting in the back of the bus and I had the really bright idea of crawling under the chair in front of me and tying little third grader Eric's bootlaces to the seat in front of him. Now, the boys and I in the back of the bus could hardly contain our anticipation as we came to Eric's stop just a few moments later. Now, you can guess what happened. Eric took a stand uh, in his chair and he took one step towards the front of that bus and he fell flat on his face. And the entire bus erupted in laughter. And my friends and I were really, really proud of that antic that we pulled that morning uh, in fifth grade. But I'll tell you that I was not um, feeling great for very long because when I got home that afternoon, Eric's mom called my mom And she shared how hurt and embarrassed that Eric was that I did that that morning. And to this day, my stomach still gets a knot telling that story because I can remember how it felt to have that guilt and shame hang over me. Now, when I was in high school, I was finally legally, legally allowed to drive. And one Friday night, my friends and I went to a movie. Now, sitting here today in this room, I could not tell you what that movie was called. I couldn't tell you any of the plot of that movie or anything about that movie at all, other than I do remember in that movie at one point there was a person who was riding on top of a moving car. And so as my friends and I left the theater that night, we had the bright idea to impress the girls who were waiting in the entryway for their parents. So as we left the theater that night, we saw them in the doorway, and we walked over to my car, and my friend Brad climbed on top of my 1995 Ford Taurus, and I drove as slowly as I could, and I would even say paraded, right in front of that front door of that movie theater. And we looked over, and those girls were laughing and waving at us. They were clearly really impressed. But let me tell you something this morning, church. That mountain, we were not on top of that mountain for very long because just as we turned the corner about 50 feet from where those girls were, there was a spotlight that shone directly into my windshield and you'll never guess it was a Brooklyn Center police officer. And my parents weren't very impressed when I got home that night when I had to tell them that the police department was going to be calling them because I was driving around with somebody on top of my car. Now, you hear those stories, and I'm glad you laughed. I think they're really funny as well. And we could easily chalk them up to immaturity. We could easily chalk them up to being a kid. But, unfortunately, some of the dumb decisions and sinful behavior followed me into my adult years. Some of you know this about my story, but I was actually married and divorced before I met my wife, Leah. And I would love, honestly, to give you a little bit of context this morning. And I could list off a ton of excuses about what happened over those years of my marriage. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to share with you that one night over dinner, I looked across the table at my now ex-wife and I told her that I was going to be leaving. I told her that I was going to be chasing after a new life, and a new person that I thought would make me a lot happier. And the next couple of years were filled with a lot more unhealthy decisions as well. And there was a lot of people who reached out to me, honestly, every single day. And they tried to speak some sense into me, and I honestly believe that they really meant the best for me. But I chose instead to chase after unhealthy friendships, unhealthy relationships. And I chose when I finally realized that I was in a place of deep despair and darkness that I would instead look to alcohol to help me fall asleep at night and to help medicate the pain that was in my body. And it's really cool to sing those songs this morning because I will tell you for certain that Jesus Christ saved my life that he met me in my absolute darkest place of my story. And he brought me out of it. And I can sit here in front of you this morning and tell you about all the freedom that I've experienced and the redemption in my marriage and in my family. But unfortunately, there's some other things that have plagued me throughout my life. As a kid, I dealt a lot with anger. And though I felt, found a lot of freedom in my story, as you've just heard, Some of the darkest parts. I'd honestly rather you didn't know that sometimes the anger that's inside of me simmers up to a boiling point. And just recently, as in literally weeks ago, I was down in our laundry room in the basement, and a series of minor inconveniences and annoyances came to a head with a leaking laundry faucet. And I was so mad at that thing, I took the laundry basket and slammed it down onto the washer. And unfortunately, part of that laundry basket broke off and hit one of the light fixtures in the room and broke it. That happened just recently. And luckily, those things that I deal with with my anger happen most often when I'm alone. But this morning, I'd honestly rather you didn't know that sometimes I raise my voice at our sweet three-year-old daughter a little bit too loudly. That I yell at her and often argue with her as a three-year-old. My wife Leah needs to remind me sometimes that Nick she's only 3 years old. And so you're probably wondering this morning why I would share some of the darkest points in my life with you in this place. It's because I've learned over the years that I think that I think that we need to come to God with our confession regularly. And as we continue the sermon series, Troth, this morning, when we learn about God's unmerited and unwarranted forgiveness for us, I think that we need to willingly come to him with our confession in everything that we do. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brent shared the story from 2 Samuel 12, if you remember that, when we talked about God's voice uh, and our promise in order to obey his voice. He shared the story of the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 confronting the great King David in his sin. He confronted him in the sin of his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah to cover it up. And through that story and many other stories in the Bible, we learn that David, the great King David, was a very broken man. But we also learn in the scriptures that King David was known as a man after God's own heart. So I wonder how both of those things could be true. I think it's because King David knew a thing about the discipline of confession. When you read through the scriptures, you'll find King David regularly in a place of brokenness, but you also read regular that, regularly that he came to God with his confession. He came to God crying out for mercy on a regular basis. David's confession in 2 Samuel 12 that Pastor Brent shared a few weeks ago caused him to write Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was David's psalm that he wrote as a confession to God as a result of what happened in 2 Samuel 12. And I'd love to read that verse for you this morning. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. I think it's clear from this passage that David knew that our heart posture is what God was in that moment and he is after from us. Though we are born in sin and we will inevitably sin, God desires that we willingly come to him with our confession. Now, before we go on, I share a little bit more about why I think confession should be a regular and healthy spiritual discipline for us. I want to talk a little bit about sin. When you look around culture and even sometimes in the church, the bar as to what sin is has moved really so far that Sin is really only what we think someone else shouldn't be doing. So I think it's important that we look at the scriptures and have it tell us what the biblical authors thought sin was. When the biblical authors talk about sin, they're talking about something that is much deeper and more complex than a list of decisions or good or or bad behaviors that we do. They're talking about a corruption of God's good and perfect creation. That shows up in our relationships and our decisions, but also in the world around us. So biblically, sin is both something that we do, the decisions that we make, but it's also the effect of the decisions that are made in the world. So there are three words in the Old Testament that refer to sin. And as I go through these, think about them in reference to Psalm 51. You'll notice that King David actually used all three of these words when he wrote Psalm 51. So the first is the Hebrew word most frequently translated as sin, which is chata, is That's a hard K-H. Sometimes the translations come back without the K. And so chata in the Bible means to miss the goal or to miss the mark. So the mark or the goal that the biblical authors talk about is, in a biblical sense, is to live with a love for God and a love for all of, its, all of his creation, which includes people, So when we choose not to live and love this way, it invites a certain corruption into God's good creation. Now the second word for sin is the Hebrew word avon, which is most often translated to iniquity, which means that something that is bent or twisted out of shape. So avon is about distorting what is otherwise good. And biblically, it's most commonly referring to actions that people take and that we take today, like adultery, like murder, like violence, like stealing, like intentionally lying. See, that causes a brokenness in our relationship and in our lives. And we're actually all affected by that in the world. The third world, the third word, excuse me, is the Hebrew word pesha, which is most often translated as transgression. So pesha more closely Refers to the relational consequences of sin and it exists in otherwise trusting relationships. So, an example between, if I compare Avon and Pasha, Avon is about, let's say, somebody who you don't know, a complete stranger breaks into your house. So you don't have a trusted relationship with that person, so that would be Avon. But Pasha occurs when the person that breaks into your house is a trusted friend, is a neighbor or somebody that you know well and trust. In chata, avon, and pasha, or sin, iniquity, and transgression, it all boils down to something that is broken in relationship between us and God's entire creation, which includes other people. And it's broken between us and God. You see, God wants to restore all of these things to the good and perfect order that he intended when he created everything. And the first step in redeeming God's creation is to recognize the places where it is out of order or sin exists, where we've missed the mark, where we've done wrong, or where we've hurt other people. So this morning, if we've learned that sin is more than just a laundry list of good and bad behaviors, and we live in a world where sin is happening all of the time, should we then spend all of our free time confessing sin or recognizing sin and giving it to God? Well, I think you would understand that the answer to that question is obviously not. Because the world that we live in is fallen and sin is happening all the time, whether by us or by the people that live in the world with us, we would literally be talking to God all of the time in in a state of confession. And secondly, and much more importantly, is that because of Jesus' crucifixion, of his death on the cross, of bearing our sin, our shame, and our guilt, we don't have to do this. You see, there's a theological word. It's called justification. And what justification means is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are moved, it says, from a place of sin to a place of righteousness. We no longer live under what the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 called the wages of sin. And what Paul meant in that verse was that the wages of sin are death or an eternal separation from God and the the perfect creation that he has for us. But we also live in a world where sin, iniquity, and transgression are happening all of the time. And we're affected by them until the time that Jesus comes to restore God's perfect created order. Now before I go on and talk a little bit more about confession and forgiveness, I want to talk a little bit about confession in the church. Some of you in this room, including myself, grew up in a faith tradition where you were taught that you needed to confess your sin to some sort of intercessor, some sort of person that stood between you and God, and so you confessed your sin to them. I wanna tell you this morning that that is not necessary. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't ever confess your sin to Pastor Brent, bring it to uh, myself or Pastor Chris, There are good and healthy things that happen when you confess to a person, like accountability, and we're happy to walk through that with you. But I want to tell you that it's not necessary that you confess your sin to another person. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author writes these words, So then, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness empathize with our weakness but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin let us then approach god's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need you see we don't need a priest to approach god Through Jesus, we have, as the scripture says, a high priest who allows us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can find mercy in our time of need. When we confess, we can talk to God directly because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Because he lived without sin and he was crucified on the cross, the Bible says when that happened, the veil was torn. You see, in the Old Testament times, in the temple times of Judaism, there was a physical veil that existed in the temple. And you'll see here a photo of a diagram of the temple in the Jewish tradition. And you'll notice on kind of the left side there, the smallest room is called the Holy of Holies. That's outside of the holy place. You see, in the Jewish tradition, in the faith, there was only one person who was known as the high priest that was able to enter that Holy of Holies, And they were only able to do that one time of year. So one person, the high priest, could enter God's Holy of Holies to be directly with God's presence and they could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so you can imagine when those words were written in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, that it was a really big deal that now Jesus became that high priest. That the High priest once a year, now is Jesus. And because he bore our sin and our shame on the cross, and the veil was torn when he died on the cross, we have access directly to God. And we can approach God, hear me now, we can approach God with confidence at any time to receive mercy in our times of need. So if we don't have to confess everything all the time, if we're eternally forgiven and we have a great high priest in Jesus, why should we confess at all? So to answer that question, I'd like to offer this morning two reasons. The first reason is about our personal relationship with God. And the second is about the relationship that the church or the Christian faith has with God as a whole. But it also is about the faith that we have and relationship we have with God as a church, as Northridge Church, as we continue to walk out our two-year yes journey. First, the personal reason. The theologian R.C. Sproul wrote that, in confession, we do not merely admit our sin, but we confess our sins. We confess them as the burden that they are, as the stumbling block that estranges us from God, as the manifestation of our rebellion against God, we lay them out before God and say, these are my sins. They are the evidence of my guilt. They are the expression of my shame. They are the cause of my separation from you. Now what I think R.C. Sproul is clearly saying here is that sin is a burden that exists in our relationship with God. It causes separation between us and God. God. And so the act of confession actually lays that burden at God's feet and in response, he takes it from us so that it doesn't have to exist anymore between us. Now, I think of this relationship a little bit like my marriage relationship with Leah. You see, in a marriage, it's not a requirement that you share everything with that person all of the time. It's not a requirement that I tell Leah everything that I do or everything that I think. But I would argue with you this morning that the most intimate relationships develop when we are most open with the people that we love the most. You see, I think when we have a relationship where we are open and we tell somebody whom we love what is on our mind and what is on our heart and the things that we're thinking about and the things that we're worried about, that actually a greater sense of intimacy develops And it actually starts to minimize the behaviors that after they happen, we'd rather not tell them about. I think in those type of relationships, we can actually start to practice the righteousness that God gives us when we put our faith in Jesus. So when we are completely transparent with those that we love the most and with God, we'll find that we'll start to be formed into the type of people that share the same type of intimacy that Jesus did with the Father, where nothing is hidden and nothing is off limits. And when we come to the place that we inevitably will, when we would rather do the right thing, whether, we'd rather not do the right thing, we would rather do what feels good or do what is easier, when in my story, I would rather not say that I looked at a picture for too long or I thought about another person for too long, when I'd rather do what is easier, like tell that half-truth or that lie, that instead I would submit to God's will. I'd submit to God's will like Jesus did in the garden on the night before he was arrested and crucified. And it says in Luke 22 that Jesus said to the Father, God, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. You see, I think simply put, confession is the means that we can come closest or start to come closest this side of heaven to the type of relationship that God shared with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Where we are exactly who we are, how we are, we are perfectly loved by God, and we are totally unashamed and love perfectly for who we are now the second and more a more global reason that we should confess has to do with the health and the power of the church or the christian faith but remember it also has to do a lot with us about us here at northridge as we are a church family and a gathering of christians and followers of jesus as Pastor Brent shared a few weeks ago, and you likely saw on your newsfeed, online, or in the news, there was a revival at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And you saw through the news and through the stories of what God was clearly doing there in Kentucky that He was doing something powerful in the lives of those students and everyone that encountered what was happening there at the revival at Asbury. And it reminded me of something a pastor shared at a conference that Leah and I attended last January at a church in Portland, Oregon. There is a British author named Pete Hughes, and he's also a pastor of King's Cross Church in London. And he shared a little bit about the historical uh, nature of revivals and how and why they've happened over the years. At that conference, Pete Hughes highlighted one of the most significant revivals in the modern age, and that was the 1949 Hebridean Revival. The Hebrides are an archipelago or a group of small islands off the west coast of Scotland. And in 1949, from 1952, so for three years, a revival went through the Hebrides on the Isle of Lewis, which is the biggest island in that archipelago. And so it's quite amazing to have a remote island off the coast of Scotland where to this day there are no more than 18,000 people. To have, for three years, a powerful move of God where hundreds and hundreds of people came to faith. That they fell on their knees in confession and repentance. And those who were there shared that this was not only happening in the parish buildings, but it was happening in homes, it was happening in barns, it was happening in taverns, it was happening literally everywhere on that island. And it's really cool, I think, that those who were there and wrote about the time in the Hebridean revival that most of the people that were coming to that island to meet with God were young people. Now there was a man named Duncan Campbell and he was the minister of the parish during the years of the Hebridean revival. And what's really cool is Duncan Campbell wrote of his experience. And in this case, what I want to read from you is about how he witnessed the revival start in the Hebrides in 1949. So I'd love to read an excerpt of Duncan Campbell's amazing story. One night, God gave one of the sisters a vision. Now, we have got to understand that in revival, remarkable things happen. It is supernatural. You are not moving on human levels. You are moving in divine places. In the vision, she saw the churches crowded with young people, and she told her sister, I believe revival is coming to the parish. At that time, there was not a single young person attending public worship, a fact that cannot be disputed. Sending for the minister, she told him her story and he took her message as a word from God to his heart. Turning to her, he said, what do you think we should do? What? She said, give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to waiting upon God. Get your elders and deacons together and spend at least two nights a week waiting upon God in prayer. If you do that at your end of the parish, my sister and I will do it at our end of the parish from 10 o'clock at night until 2 or 3 o'clock the next morning. So the minister called his leaders together, and for several months they waited upon God in a barn among the straw. During that time they pled one promise, that of Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants." This went on for three months. Nothing happened. But one night, a young deacon rose and began reading from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their savior. Closing his Bible, he addressed the minister and other officers in words that sound crude in English but not so crude in our Gaelic language. And I quote, it seems to me so much humbug to be waiting as we are waiting, to be praying as we are praying when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then he lifted his hands toward heaven and prayed, "O oh God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Then he went to his knees and he fell into a trance. Now don't ask me to explain the physical manifestations of this moment because I can't. But this I do know. That something happened in the barn at that moment in that young deacon. There was a power loosed that shook the heavens and an awareness of God gripped those gathered together. That's an incredible story, isn't it? Notice that God spoke a word to one of the sisters and they waited in prayer. Now I want to be clear this morning that prayer and waiting in prayer is not a bad thing. That prayer is our communication and our communion with the living God and we should do that regularly. But there's an important transition that happened in this story in the Hebridean revival and that's when the young minister asked if all of their waiting and praying meant anything if they weren't rightly related God. You see, I think if we want to see a move of God in our life, in our families and in our community and in our church, which I'd like to see that, it's it's not about our desire and it's not just about our prayer. It's about coming in front of God with clean hands and pure hearts and asking that he would have his way with us. Earlier in the message, I read from Psalm 51. Notice that the psalm that the young minister read in 1949 was that of Psalm 24, which was also written by King David. Notice the identical language about a pure heart as I read the rest of Psalm 51 that I read earlier, and I'm going to pick it back up in verse 10 if you're following along. Psalm 51, starting verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. You see, confession is the beginning of a move of repentance. And repentance is the beginning of God's power resting on us. It's the beginning of the hundreds of people in the Hebridean revival that came to faith, coming to faith in this church and in this community. It's lives changed, it's your life changed, it's the people that you love the most, it's their lives changed. It's families being restored, it's the it's the chains of addiction and brokenness that have plagued generations In the people that you know and love. It's seeing God move in unexpected and unheard of ways that would change the world around us. Now, if we want those things, I would love to see those things happen. And we want to continue to create a depth and intimacy, and our relationship with God, we have to be willing to recognize our sin, our transgression, and our iniquity. And we have to be willing to bring it to God. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? When we sit in this space together together, this is a wonderful, beautiful, close-knit church family. You know the people in this room. Whether you know them from the relationships you've developed here at Northridge or you know them from the fact that your kids play sports together or go, go to school together, these are people that you encounter at least on Sunday mornings and sometimes outside of the church building. And in the culture that we live in, Honestly, it's more about how things appear to be than how things actually are. It matters more what our life looks like than what our life actually is. And we live in a community that, let's be honest, it's about the things in life that you're able to achieve through your career, through the things that you've accumulated, It's about getting ahead in your career and having the place that you live and the family that you're proud of and you should be proud of those things. But I think sometimes that can be a mask, at least it is for me, about what's really going on inside of our heart. About the things that we do that cause us to sin. It's about the things that we do that cause broken relationships in our life. And it's about the ways that we are not really quite living openly with others and with God. The theologian Richard, Richard Foster once wrote, "Confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone has advanced so far into holiness that we we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others." We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped on the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. Let's realize as we sit together, as a church family, that we're not alone in this. As Pastor Brent always shares, this is a safe place. It's a safe place to be exactly who you are and to start to move to a place where you can grow closer to God and other people. So we're actually going to practice this today. For some of you, this is going to be a little bit strange. And as I shared, this is a safe place so you do not have to do anything that you're uncomfortable with. We'll never ask you to do something like that here. But if you're willing, To engage with this, I believe this is going to be a really meaningful and powerful time. It says in 1 John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins that he, that's God, is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In just a moment, I'm going to invite us to close our eyes. We're just going to sit in our chairs and we're going to close our eyes so no one is going to see what's going on. So don't worry, it's going to be a safe exercise. But I'm actually going to ask us to bring something to God in confession. Now, this might be a sin. This might be some way that we're living outside of God's will. It might be an action. It might be a lie that we're telling ourselves or somebody else. It might be a way that we're not loving perfectly God's creation and the other people that are in our community and in our lives. Or it might be our part in a broken relationship that exists in our life. But let's join together as a church family to grow closer to God and to the people of love that God has created us to be. Let's stand before God this morning as a church family with, as David wrote, clean hands and pure hearts so that the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, would have our way and move us and change us and do something powerful and unexpected around us. Ask God when you come to him in confession that he would have his way with you, that we would see an outpouring of a spirit like happened at Asbury and like happened in 1949 in the Hebridean revival, that we would see a powerful move of God because we came before him with clean hands and pure hearts and a repentant spirit and asked that he had his way with us. So let's do it, you ready? Okay. Would you do me a favor this morning and close your eyes if you're comfortable. Now, as you're sitting in the silence of your seat, if you're willing, put out your hands in a posture of submission. Like, hold your hands open on your lap or at your side. Now as you're doing that, I'd like you to, with your eyes closed, look down at your hands. And I would like you to ask God, again in silence, ask God to show you something in some way that you're not living rightly related to God. Whether that's sin, iniquity, transgression, something that you know and God knows is broken in relationship between you and him in his creation. Now you can look down at your hands and picture that thing, whether that's a feeling or that's a thought or you want to picture it as a person or you want to picture it as the sentence, like literally the words written out in your hands. I want you to look down and I'd like for you to look back up in your mind's eye or as you are sitting in your chair. And I'd like for you, if you don't already see him, to picture God in front of you. Now, picture the way that he's looking at you. Now, if you're a person who is looking at God and for whatever reason you see God as ashamed of you, or you see God as disappointed in you, I would like for you to look back down in your hands and look back up at God and see a God who is proud of you. It says in the book of Romans chapter 8, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not condemning you. He is welcoming you in this movement towards him and he wants to take what is in your hands. Now as you're looking at God and seeing his loving presence and his welcoming spirit for you, I'd like for you to slightly lift your hands up towards him. You don't need to do all of this work. God has shared uh, in this burden with you by sending Jesus to the cross. Now, hold your hands up and hold the thing before God that you would like him to take this morning. That you would like to offer him in confession. Now, be still and envision God coming towards you slowly, lovingly, and envision Him reaching into your hands and, in one motion, give God the thing that is between you and He. and let him take it from you in one motion. This is a shared. This is a relationship. This is something that God is taking from you and that you're giving him. So lift that before God. Let him take it from you. And as your hands feel lighter, you can set them back down in your lap or at your side. I'd like you to feel a little bit lighter this morning. Look at God and he has no trouble, believe me, taking that on. Whatever person is in this room, The sum of everything that we gave to God this morning did not bother God at all. In fact, He was really welcoming and loving and taking that from us. Now feel a little bit lighter. Feel how you feel as you come a step closer to God. Look at how proud God is of you. Look at how God took a step closer to you in relationship. This is what confession is. It's not a big show. It's not a rote prayer. It's coming before the living God with clean hands and pure hearts and saying, God, this is the burden that exists between us. God, will you take this from me? Now, as you continue to have your eyes closed and your hands in whatever posture you would like, Will you join me in prayer this morning? God, we are a people that desire to be in right relationship with you. We are a people that desire to have no distance exist between us and you, God. And it says in your word that as we draw closer to you, you draw closer to us. So we believe as a church this morning that we are that much closer to you. That we're sitting at your feet as your beloved children, your sons and daughters, and that you are proud of us this morning, God. God, I ask that as we as a church family leave this place this morning, That things would be changed, that we would be lighter, that your spirit would be at work in us and at work in this community of faith that you've developed and you've brought together here at Northridge Church. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would start to have your way among us, that we'd be a people empowered by your spirit that would go out and share this love and this relationship with others in a way that would bring them to faith, that it would break down walls of sin and shame in our families. In this community. God, we are so in love with you and we are so grateful for Jesus who came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross, bore our sin and shame so that we could live eternally with you, God. That we could live in right relationship. Help us, oh God, as we cry out in mercy, to be a people who regularly come to you with all that we have and all that we are and remind us, God, that you are not ashamed of who we are, that you are proud of us, that you love us, and that you desire this relationship with us. Now, As we continue to worship this morning, God, you are making a way. We know that you are. Make a way, Lord. We are a people that love you and are committed to walking this out. We love you, God. We thank you so much for Jesus and the price that he paid. And we pray these things in God's, Jesus' most powerful name this morning. Amen.